those? Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's jump in. We've got a lot to go through in this passage. It's a very interesting passage, and it's a, it's a complicated passage. It's a controversial passage. But I think that we can understand it because the Holy Spirit helps us understand the Scripture, right? And we can apply it because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is useful, profitable for us, including passages that are difficult like the one we're looking at this morning. Um, And I have way more notes than I can possibly cover in our time, so you listen hard and I'll talk hard and we'll get through it together. All right, my title, the title of the message this morning is A Symbol of Authority, A Symbol of Authority. Susan was born on February 15th, 1820 in Massachusetts. She grew up in a Quaker home, and she quickly embraced the belief that God had created all people equal. As a result, at an early age, she was very angered by the concept of slavery in the United States. She met Frederick Douglass, who was a friend of her father's, which strengthened her resolve. She began to give public speeches, which were not received very well because she was a woman. In her early 30s, Susan, along with her best friend, began advocating for something else, the the right to vote for women. In 1870, when she turned 50, the 15th Amendment to the Constitution gave the right to vote to all regardless of race. All meaning all men. She was furious that Congress had not included women in that amendment. When she was 52, she was arrested for trying to cast a vote. She campaigned for over 50 years and died in 1906, 14 years before the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified, giving the right to vote to all Americans this time male and female. Susan B. Anthony fought to correct an injustice in our society based on her belief that all people were created equal. In the 1960s, a new second wave sprung up, which was named the Women's Liberation Movement. This time, the push was equal opportunities for women equal access to education, more freedom over their reproductive decision-making, and equal pay. Some of the results of this push included the passing of the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution, which never got ratified. It came three states short. Title IX, which allowed women to access all educational schools funded by the federal government and to get involved in athletics. And the Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade in 1973, legalizing abortion nationwide. The next major target of perceived inequality was marriage. So in 2004, Massachusetts, again, became the first state to legalize same-sex marriage. Ten years later, the Supreme Court affirmed that recognition across all 50 states. In the nearly ten years since then, 
being equal and being free has come to mean that a person can even choose to identify as the opposite of their biological gender. And make no mistake that while the actions of radicals continue to spiral into further levels of absurdity and nonsense, there is a huge cost to so many caught up in the latest wave of fighting perceived injustices. Confusion, depression, anxiety, medications, surgeries, suicides. I want to be clear that many of the injustices that women have fought for over the years have been noble fights. Men and women are created equal, as we'll see in today's passage. But like many pursuits, the sinful rebellion of human nature gradually turns the tide against all things righteous and lovely. And with regard to women's liberation, I'm not so sure that the first wave didn't actually start in Corinth with some of the women there. And so Paul turns his attention to women this morning in one of the most difficult passages in the entire letter. As I have studied it this week, I think the best way for us this morning to cover these verses in a responsible way and get as much as we can out of it is to ask questions of the text and let the text answer them. And that's what I want to do today. I want to answer, ask some questions and see if the text can answer them for us. The first question, look at verse 2. We'll go back and start there. Why does Paul commend the Corinthians? Why does he commend the Corinthians? As we've seen, the Corinthian church is in, is in a mess. Lots of confusion, lots of inconsistencies, lots of sinful divisiveness, lots of immorality. But despite all of that, and by the way, there's more mess to come that we haven't even got to yet. Despite all of that, Paul says here he is pleased that they sought his advice. Look at verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. His commendation of them is directly related to two things. First, on account of what they've heard from him. And second, on account of what they've been maintaining, what they've been um, holding up to with regard to his tradition. Now, with respect to what they've heard, he says, I commend you because you remember me in everything. You know, we should remember when the church at Corinth was established, Paul had worked very hard to get this church established in solid truth. If we, if we went back to Acts chapter 18 and revisited the founding of this church, you, we would find and remember that Paul stayed there for a year and a half. He only stayed at places really a short time, with the exception of places like Corinth, and Ephesus, he stayed for quite a while. But here in Corinth, he stayed for a year and a half teaching them the Word of God. Now, what were the things that they had heard from him, the things that he had taught them, that he's glad they're remembering and including uh, in him? Well, later in chapter 11, in verse 23, which we'll get to next week, he reminds them, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Delivered, past tense. 
he had already taught them about the importance of communion. If we go forward to chapter 15 and verse 1, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Past tense. I preached it to you, which you received. Past tense. In which you stand. Present tense. And then again in verse 3 of chapter 15, that uses the same phrase. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That's what they had heard. Things like that. Important things. Essential things. The gospel. Communion. How to celebrate the Lord's death. What, what were they holding on to? The text says... They were, they were maintaining what Paul called traditions. Essentially, that the idea of tradition is what is passed along by way of teaching. That's what Paul's referring to. So, we know from this letter, these people are not perfect. We know that. But they did have some strengths. And Paul takes a moment here before he gets into the subject to commend them for that. And brothers and sisters, it's just good, I think, for us to take a moment and remind ourselves as we get into this text that we are not perfect around here either, are we? But we can thank God for the things we remember and the things that we maintain, especially for the gospel that we've received, especially for the fact that by God's grace, we're holding on to the most important things as a church. So why does Paul commend the Corinthians? That's why. Number two, second question. What is the big idea that Paul wants to communicate here? Look at verse three. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. That phrase, I want you to understand introduces something which is vitally important. It would seem that what Paul is about to say is something that did not yet belong to the tradition, what he had already taught them. Let's break it down. This is the big idea of the passage. I want to spend a moment talking about this theological truth before we move into his specifics. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. This is true not just of believers, but of unbelievers as well. He says, every man. The fact that unbelievers don't understand that or don't accept that does not alter the truth of the statement. Christ is the head of every man. And one day, we know Paul said later, at the name of Jesus, every knee, every man will bow and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He goes on to say, the head of a wife is her husband. Now, you may not be surprised to hear that kind of a statement in this church, but the text is going to show us that the issue here is not simply the relationship of a husband to his wife, but the significance of the relationship of men to women. So for those of us who have a hard time Accepting this idea in relationship to marriage, that a husband is the head of the wife, you're going to go crazy to realize that this text doesn't just limit this to marriage. It involves the totality of the relationships between men and women. 
And it's the way God planned it from all creation. And in an age of radical feminism, to even read this passage out loud, let alone to stand by it, is a dangerous thing to do in our culture. But if we were to jump from this truth immediately to application without first stopping and agreeing with the principle, we're going to be in a state of a lot of confusion. Notice here the issue of the relationship between men and women. Here, mentioned as husband and wife, later is men and women in the passage. Notice the issue here is placed in the context, in verse 3, of the headship of Christ over the man and of God the Father over the Son. He says the head of Christ is God. Now this very uncomfortable principle of headship has been manipulated by those seeking to pacify the women's liberation movement by saying that the word head here means source instead of headship. So it's a lot easier and it's a lot more palatable to say that the man is the source of the woman because Eve was literally made from Adam, right? And our text even refers to that down in verse number 8. But brothers and sisters, that is not what the word head means in this context. Otherwise, you would make a very grave error in regard to the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. If you say that the Father is the source of the Son, that the Father created the Son, or the Son was somehow birthed out of the Father, that is wrong theology. Dreadfully wrong theology. Jesus has coexisted with the Father for all eternity. He was never created. He never came out of something else. The truth is that head, in this context, means authority. That's what it means. So Christ is the head of every man. He has the authority over men in the home. Christ is the head over all husbands. They're to model his behavior after his. That's what Paul just got telling him, right? In verse 1, imitate me as I follow Christ. In the church, Christ is the head over all pastors, over all leaders. And they are to model their behavior after his. In the same way in the home, the husband is the head of the wife. And within the church, it is to men that God has entrusted the responsibility of pastoral leadership in having authority over the fellowship of God's people. Now, whether you and I like that or not, whether it offends our cultural understanding or our level of wokeness in this culture, that's not the issue. The issue is, is that what the Bible says? And in terms of God and Christ, God the Son became man and acted on behalf of Adam's race and made himself obedient to the Father's authority. And so in that sense, the Father is the head over Christ. We saw that clearly on display. In fact, Pastor Trey uh, referenced it in his prayer earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw that there, didn't we? When Jesus said, Not my will, but yours be done, Father. And he went to the cross. 
The fact that Jesus submitted to the Father's will did not make him any less equal to the Father. In the same way, for women to submit to the leadership of men in society, in the home, in the church, never in any way renders them second-class citizens, never renders them inferior on any level. But their submission, voluntary submission, and I use that word carefully, is an indication of their willingness to acknowledge that God is God. He is sovereign in his dealings. What he says goes because he made it that way. He created us. He set it up. He designed it. Look at verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. How are we to understand a verse like that? We're to understand it in relationship to the other verses around it, right? Look at verses 8 and 9. Each one reflects the glory from whom they were created. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man, referring to the garden, referring to the rib. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. God said it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper meet for him. Out of the dust, God made man. From that dusty origin, man emerged to declare God's glory. And God made man fall into a deep sleep, as we know, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He removed a rib. He made a woman out of man. She came out as the glory of the man from whom she had come. It's perfection, brothers and sisters. What our world is struggling after today is total imperfection. It's unbelievable chaos. God gave us a perfectly designed order in which to live. And if you go back to Genesis 2, 18 to 25, the account that I just uh, noted, and you look at it in connection with these verses in 1 Corinthians 11, what you find in the Bible that is teaching this, man was not created to be the helper of woman, but woman was created to be the helper of man. Now I'm going to say something right now, okay? Listen carefully. I've got to make qualifications all through the sermon, all right? For those of you male chauvinist idiots out there who have just come to the false conclusion on the strength of these verses that this is why you don't have to run the vacuum cleaner or help with the dishes or help around the house, let me tell you in no uncertain terms, you don't understand the Bible. What the Bible does not say is that man doesn't help woman. Or that men are not supposed to help women. Or that husbands are not supposed to help their wives. It doesn't say any of that. Both chauvinism and radical feminism are unbiblical nonsense. One more thing here before we move on. This order that God created within humanity is not based on the fall. Some people will tell you this. Well, the reason it's this way is because of sin. Well, here's the problem with that. What is Paul referring to? Genesis chapter 2. When is the fall? 
Genesis chapter 3. What came first? God's design. It was perfect. The principle comes from creation. It doesn't come from sin. Paul makes no distinction between men and women on their spiritual condition. He doesn't make any distinction in relationship to their intellectual condition. He doesn't make any distinction in relationship to their worth or to their contribution to society or to culture. In terms of their abilities, in terms of their intellect, in terms of their spirituality, women are equal, and in some cases, frankly, well beyond men. And because they know their Bible so well, they know they're supposed to submit to us. Why? Because we have more intrinsic worth? No. Because we're smarter? Certainly not. Because we're more spiritual? No. Why? Because God said so. That's just it. That's why you submit to your husband. That's why you love your wife. Because God set it up that way. And the authority and the submission in each case are based upon love. It's not some kind of coercive manipulation, right? Christ is equal with the Father. He submits to the Father's leadership and headship out of love. Women and men are equal in spiritual terms before the Lord, and yet they respond in loving submission as they were intended to. And if you go to Ephesians 5, right before it says submit yourselves to your husband's wives, it says submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. There's a, mutual, there's a level of mutual submission as well as a wife's role of submission to her husband. Well, the reason Paul is going after verse 3, I think, right here at the beginning of this passage is because of what he's about to deal with in the Corinthian church. The first issue that they needed to deal with is what's going on inside their heads. Once they can deal with what's going on inside their heads, then they can, then Paul can help them with what's going on on top of their heads. And that is where we're going to turn our attention to here in just a moment. A third question this morning. Why would the angels be offended? Look at verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. Now, this isn't the main point of the text, but it is probably the most cryptic. And so I just want to deal with it on its own. Okay, and then we'll move on. Why does Paul mention the angels here? The context is verse 8. Man didn't come from a woman. Woman came from man. Man wasn't created for woman. Woman was created for man. And for this reason, because of the natural order of things, and Paul adds, because of the angels, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. So there's a couple questions here, what is the symbol of authority, and what do the angels have to do with it? Well, there's a couple of views on this. I'm going to give you both of them, all right? The first view is that the authority that's mentioned here is the authority of the man, and the symbol of that is what the woman wears on her head so that she will live out the principles 
that are described in verses 8 and 9. And at the same time, not offend the angels. Why would the angels be offended? Well, in this view, the angels are the guardians or the observers of this divine order. Where do, they, where do people get that idea? The angels witnessed God's design for men and women. They were present at creation. Job tells us that in Job 38, verse 7. Because the angels were witnesses of the creation of men and women, some think that they are kind of the, the, the gatekeepers or the guardians or the observers. Uh, the, the angels, the most submissive creatures of all of God's creatures, they've seen what God has designed and they're offended at any violation of that order. That's one view. The other view is that this sign of authority is both an indication of the man's authority with respect to the woman, but also a sign of her authority toward the rest of creation and in relationship to the angels as a created being. The Christian woman understood in this view that she was placed above the rest of creation, angels included. So the symbol of authority may not just be a symbol of her submission to men, but may also be an indication of her authority that she as a woman has over the rest of creation, including that of the angels. So her hair or her covering would be a symbol of that authority. Now, those are the two major views. Isn't that exciting? They don't affect Christian doctrine or practice, and they shouldn't be the cause of division. If you want to know what I think, you can ask me later. Question number four. What is the covering? What is the covering? Mostly looking at verses 4 through 7 here. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head, for a man ought not to cover his head. All right. What is this covering that Paul is referring to here? I want to tell you this has perplexed lots of thoughtful Christians in every era. And as is the case with the angel question, there are two major views about head coverings. And I'm going to give you both of these views and the reasons why people hold to these views and I'll tell you which one I lean to toward in this one, okay? The first view is that the covering to which Paul refers to is actually a woman's hair. That it has nothing to do with anything else other than her hair. And the concern here is that it's about the way that some women in the context of the Corinthian church were shaking loose their hair and allowing it to hang down their backs. Dreadful, right? And what were they doing with that hair? According to Paul, by doing that was a disregard for God's order, his creative order. So in this view, what Paul is wanting women to do is to pile up their long hair on top of their heads. So they should wear their hair like a big bun on top of their head. You ever wonder where a bun comes from? This is where it comes from. And there are still several Christian denominations throughout the world 
where uh, you will find women wearing hats, <laughs> as some of you were or are. And if you took their hat off, you would find the hair up in a bun underneath. And they're doing that because of these verses and this particular view. So in favor of the bun view, if we can call it that way, Paul nowhere mentions veils. This is one of the other views. Except in verse 15, and it's not in the ESV that we use here. Verse 15 says, But if a woman has long hair, is it her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. Some translations put the word veil there, which is, which is not a bad translation. But it's the only time Paul actually uses the word in all of his letters, right there. Another thing, uh, veiling was not a requirement in Old Testament Israel. We don't read about that in Old Testament Israel. It's doubtful it was required by Jews at the time of Jesus. There are a couple of accounts where some of the wealthy in large cities wore veils. So Paul doesn't use the word except once, and we don't have any kind of common practice in the Old Testament. Also, in Greek and Roman and Jewish cultures of, the t- of this time, long hair that was flying loose or disheveled hair, or, or on the other side, hair that had been severely cut off or shorn, as Paul alludes to, was a sign that the woman had done something very bad and had been, uh, in essence, cut off from the life of the community. One other thing, in Numbers chapter 5 and verse 16, uh, it talks about a woman who is being challenged in faithfulness toward her husband, and it told her that as part of her sacrifice to the Lord, she had to let down her hair. It was a shameful thing. That's view number one. The covering is the hair itself. Wear it long, bundle it up, keep it up there. And it helps to demonstrate the principles that Paul is sharing as far as the order, design, and creation. Verse, uh, view number two, which I think has better support, is that Paul is speaking of some kind of covering other than hair. And I'll give you some reasons of this, but apart for the, from the reasons, there's a logic issue for me here. If, if you look at the text, you've got this idea of a man being uncovered or praying uncovered. It's the same word. So if that covering is hair for the women, it has to be hair for the men as well. And then it would seem like he's talking about bald men. So you can only pray or prophesy in the church if you had hair. So bald guys, we're out of luck. So to me, that doesn't seem like a logical argument. Make sense? Let me give you a couple other reasons for this view. The verb that's translated covering here three times in verses 6 and 7 most commonly refers to an actual covering of some kind. So when this word is used other places in the Bible, like in Isaiah chapter 6, when it talks about the angels covering their faces, it's referring to an actual covering, to put something over their faces. It's not referring to letting their hair hang down, because we don't even know that angels have hair to start with. Um, Another uh, argument is that Philo, who was a Greek philosopher, a contemporary with the Apostle Paul, used the same terminology in his writings, covering, to refer to the removing of a handkerchief by the priest off of a head of an individual that had been put over their head. 
Uh, third, in Exodus chapter 6 and verse, or not Exodus, Esther chapter 6 and verse 12, we find this same word again used in verse, um, that's used in verse 4 here in our text in relationship to this covering. In Esther, what happens is, you remember Haman, the bad guy in Esther? Haman, uh, in this verse, covers his head in shame. And it's not referring to anything to do with his hair. He was covering his head in shame. It was a literal covering in the way that a man who's ashamed today might pull his jacket up over his head or his shirt up over his face. Um, and then another person in that same era, Plutarch, used the same terminology as Paul to speak of the head being covered with part of a toga. So in all these cases, it was a physical thing that covered the head. So I've concluded personally, my, my view on this is what's referred to here by Paul as a head, is some kind of a head covering, some kind of a, a shawl or whatever that's put over top of the head. There's no indication that we should think of it in terms of a veil like you might think of in the Middle East today or anything like that. Now, the main point is clear. Women are to adorn themselves in a certain way, right? That's, the main, that's his main point. He wants to make sure women are adorning themselves in a way that a man is not adorning himself. That, that is clear. As to what the covering is, we've got to be honest enough to say that is not equally as clear. And this is one of the, this is one of the fundamental principles in interpreting the Bible, by the way. Uh, in, in Bible hermeneutics, in, in interpretation of the Bible, the main things that we read are the plain things, the clear things. The plain things are the main things. We don't ever take unclear things and build great doctrines on them. We always look for clear things to help us understand the unclear things. So what's plain, what's clear here is that he wants women to be distinguishable from men and it's something to do with what they put on their heads in that culture, okay? Another question. Why is he concerned about this covering? Why does Paul even bring it up? How strongly does Paul feel about this? Do you want to see how strongly he feels about this? It's not some average type issue for him. The, di- the disgrace involved in getting this wrong, according to Paul, is the same, he says in this text, as the shaved heads that were represented in the women of his day, likely having to do with prostitution or extreme feminism. That's how strongly he feels about it. You might as well just shave it off and be like those women if you're going to do this, if you're going to pray or prophesy uncovered in the church. So he says, if a woman does this, refuses to wear a sign of authority in her head, she may as well go ahead. Let the hair all hang down, shave it off, This was not a marginal issue to him. It's not a marginal issue today, by the way, either, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. There is dishonor in getting this wrong. Where does this this dishonor occur? Look back in verse um, 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, we've just been told that the head of Christ is God, And the head of every man is Christ. Still with me? So when it says that if he prays in this way, he dishonors his head, head, does that mean he's dishonoring his head 
Christ? Or does it mean he's dishonoring himself, his own head? And when a woman does it wrongly, does she dishonor her head? As in a man, specifically her husband probably? Or is it that she dishonors herself, her own head? Well, we could argue all night about that. But I think we could say that in the same way that Proverbs says that when a child rebels against his parents, he brings grief both on himself and on his parents, that when men and women get this wrong, they dishonor both themselves and the one that they're in submission to or should be in submission to. Something we haven't mentioned yet is that the context of all of this has to do with praying and prophesying. Every man who prays and prophesies, and then every wife who prays or prophesies. We have a bit of a problem here, don't we? What are these women doing? Praying and prophesying in the church. Because when we get to chapter 14 and verse 34, we're going to find out that Paul says women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. If they want to ask about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. That's what Paul's going to say. It's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, don't worry. We'll get there. But what is, what is Paul saying here? What, what is it that we, we know? I mean, in, in 14, he says women should be quiet. And here it says when a woman prays or prophesies. So what, what is it, Paul? Well, well, we know a couple of things. One, the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict himself, right? Two, Paul's not about to contradict himself in the space of three chapters of inspired Scripture. It's not going to happen. It's not an option. So there has to be an explanation. One possible explanation is that what he's referring to here as praying and prophesying is different than the kind of speaking he's referring to in chapter 14. I don't think that's likely, but it's a possibility. Maybe what he's referring to in chapter 11 is just a different context. Maybe this is uh, women who are praying or prophesying out in public as opposed to within the gathered church assembly. Um, that's a possibility. Another possibility is that he's just taking one thing at a time. Right now, he's clearing up a problem with authority, um, and then later he's going to deal with something else. Now, you can, you can choose whatever interpretation you like, but what we can say with certainty is that he means what he says in chapter 11, and he means what he's going to say in chapter 14. So it's up to us to figure it out. It's up to us to sort it out. So let's understand why the head covering business is so crucial. The man does honor to his head by declaring his dependence under Christ. The woman does honor by showing she's under subjection. That's why the issue is important. It's not so much about the physical dimension of it. Uh, it's, it's, it's the expression of a whole response to the way that God has ordained patterns of authority in his universe. It goes to the very root of what a woman is and what a man is, has been designed to be. 
whether a woman wore something on her head or not, was expressing whether she believed that and was prepared to live that out in that culture. That's why it's important. That's why he's driving it home. So he's made this pretty clear in verses 3 through 10, right? But now in verses 11 and 12, look what he says. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. I, I love verse 12. You know, for those guys that get up and are like, yeah, the rib came out of the man, you know? And then the woman just answers now with Paul, well, where did you come from? The men and the women are bound together in mutual goodwill. One can't get along properly in the world without the other. We need each other. So if we're tempted to take verses 3 to 10 and use them out of balance to teach some kind of abusive male dominion, domination, we should avoid that and fight that lie. But by the same token, if someone wants to take verses 11 and 12 and set aside the instructions of 3 through 10, we should oppose that with equal effort. Then we come to verse 13. Paul calls for the readers to judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? He says to the Corinthians and he says to us, think it out. Take time. Think this through. Come to a conclusion and follow it faithfully. Last question. How then does this apply to our situation today? Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. What is verse 14 saying? Human tradition and customs throughout all of history have made distinction between the hair length of men and women. In other words, is what Paul is referring to here when it comes to hair something that is just a cultural custom of his day? Well, the problem with saying that is he says, does not nature itself teach you? He appeals back to creation, the way God set things up. Did not the things that God has marked into men and marked into women from the very order of creation, do not these elements of sexuality and gender, do they not teach us the necessity of distinguishing between the sexes? As surely as God exercises authority over Christ in terms of Christ's submission, and as Christ rules over the man, man has a role of headship, over women and one of the ways in which this is this basic essential natural element of our lives is going to show itself is for women to have longer hair and men to have shorter hair now the length of that hair what's long 
What's short? You can discuss for a very, very long time. And you're not going to find the answer in the Bible. But what is, this is what we do when we come to passages like this. We say, what is the main thing? What is the plain thing? And what the main thing is here, clear thing here, is this. Men, you're not supposed to look like a woman. Woman, you're not supposed to look like a man. You're not supposed to act like a woman, men. You're not supposed to act like a man, women. You're not supposed to display before the church a rebellious attitude toward your husband. And you're not supposed to display before the church an overbearing, harsh attitude towards your wife. And the way in which that was expressed in the Corinthian church had to do with this issue of what was being worn on the heads. And so in verses 13 to 15, Paul declares that by the wearing of a head covering, the woman showed herself in that culture, in that time, to be in keeping with the God-given distinction between men and women. Now, he says in in the last verse, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we don't have any other practice, nor do the churches of God. He's saying we don't do this different anywhere else. So what's the application? And, and it's not to be contentious. It's not to be a divisive issue. So here we are in 21st century Indianapolis. We're a long way, historically, geographically, from Corinth. If you go to Corinth today, you're just going to find a pile of rocks. Is the application of this to teach women that you ought to return to wearing coverings? Get those hats back on. No. It's not. Because we need to distinguish between the principle. The principle is timeless. We follow the principle. The application is in a specific culture, and that's going to vary from culture to culture. So, for example, if our culture right now in 2023, certain hairstyles are distinctively male or distinctively female, and yes, it's getting harder and harder, isn't it? As Christians, we should try to respect and teach and have our children have their hair worn and dressed in a manner that promotes a distinction between the genders. That's the principle. The Christian must never be found in in the other department. Guys, you don't go buy things in the ladies' department. And, and friends, we chuckle, but it's happening. If, if the wearing of earrings by a man is an indication of femininity, then the guy shouldn't wear them. If a special kind of haircut is expressive of masculinity, a woman should set it aside. Now, the reason Paul is concerned about all of this, and the reason we should be concerned about this, It's because the head coverings or the absence of head coverings sends a message. The the head covering said something in that culture. Now today, what you have on your head says very little, unless you're wearing your favorite team's hat or whatever. I don't watch what you wear on your heads. And our deacons are not watching when you come in what you're wearing on your heads. 
But I think that this is remarkably appropriate for our generation today, considering all the confusion that exists today among gender in our culture. The whole whole question of role relationships between men and women, between husband and wives in our society. Let the whole culture say whatever it likes, and they're going to. And they're going to they're gonna pump it into your television screens and you're going to see it on the billboards and on your smartphones. Everywhere you go, the culture is going to express itself. This is what God says we ought to do. And so make sure that we follow to the best of our understanding what God says we need to do. Apply the principle Apply it in our lives. Teach it to our children. Pass it on to the next generation. We speak to a culture today where the advance of women to unbiblical positions of leadership, especially in the church, is happening more and more. And on the other side of it, the absence of men from true leadership simply paves the way to chaos. We need both. And brothers and sisters, this kind of a message is going to raise more questions than I can answer in a sermon. And that's okay. Talk them through with one another. Study the Bible. Judge for yourself, Paul says. Is Paul saying that a woman can never be in a leadership position? No. He would have a hard time defending Deborah as a judge in the Old Testament, wouldn't he? Among others. So don't jump to any extremes in making conclusions about these things. Stick with what's clear. Stick with what the main and plain thing is and follow it to the best of your ability. The world will see the difference. And by the difference, hopefully, they will be drawn to our Jesus. Because brothers and sisters, there's a lot of hurting people out there right now. There's a lot of kids that are just following what they think is the in thing and the trendy thing. And, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not going to identify as a, as a boy anymore. I'm going to be a girl. Or I'm going to dress like this. Or I'm going to wear this fashion because, you know, I can do whatever I want. I can be whoever I want. Brothers and sisters, this kind of living leads to absolute chaos and self-destruction in our culture. And it won't be long. And, in fact, it's already happening We have a lot of people who are really hurting because they've been disillusioned by going down these paths. And the church needs to be there to say, we love you, we understand, sin takes us where we shouldn't go, there's forgiveness in the Lord Jesus, and there's a better way. And we need to share that with love and humility and live that way ourselves.